This is episode 235 with author and one of the foremost ultra coaches on the planet and accomplished ultra marathoner himself, Jason Koop. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode is going to help you train more strategically for ultra marathons. My guest is the author of the most comprehensive manual on ultra training that exists, Jason Koop. He's personally run some of the most difficult ultras in the world, from Badwater 135, Hard Rock 100, the Leadville Trail 100, and the Western States Endurance Run. We're going to discuss why ultras are so different than any other distance race, how to best structure back-to-back long runs, the maximum distance you should aim for during training, how to get ready for mountainous races if you don't have access to any hills, and a lot more. If you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, you can expect even more training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on how to structure your weekly mileage, my favorite form drills, core and strength routines, and more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog with topics as varied as the top mistakes runners make in the weight room, why you've hit a performance plateau, and more. You'll also find our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and more, plus the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of the most reputable blood testing companies in the world. They test dozens of biomarkers so you know if there are any red flags with your physiology that might be hampering your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal range. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING. The code is STRENGTHRUNNING, no space, and you can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING. I also want to thank Bexta for her review of the podcast in Apple Music. Reviews help other runners discover the show, and I'm so appreciative of them. Bexta wrote, I ran my first marathon in 2018, and I found the Strength Running Podcast during my training as I looked to learn more about running and how to successfully complete a marathon. I have been hooked on running and this podcast ever since. Jason does an amazing job of explaining the process of improvement in running. I've listened to every new podcast since 2018, and now in 2022, as I look to complete marathon number six, I still listen, and every time I pick up new ideas. Sometimes on long runs, when I'm getting a little tired, I tune in and I hearing the podcast gets me excited about what I'm doing and motivates me to finish. This should be on every runner's podcast list. Thanks so much, Jason. Keep up the great work. 
Thank you for this, Bexta. I will certainly keep up the work, and I hope that no matter the episode, you continue to pick up a new idea to implement in your training. If you'd like a shout out in a future episode, leave a review in Apple Music. My guest today is none other than Jason Koop, one of the most sought after ultramarathon coaches on the planet. He's the head coach of Carmichael Training Systems Ultra Running. He's managed over 100 coaches himself and has been coaching for more than 20 years. Jason has just published the second edition of Training Essentials for Ultra Running, which is the most comprehensive manual on how to train for ultra distances. It's more than 500 pages long, has more than 400 scientific citations, and has undergone two scientific reviews to ensure its accuracy. There's truly nothing like it. In this conversation, we're discussing the evolving research on ultramarathon training, the most common failure points that lead runners to drop out of races, in-depth advice on long runs and mountain training, and a lot more. It's always a pleasure to chat with Jason and learn from his experience and expertise. I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Koop. Koop, welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. Thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, and I think me starting with a big congratulations is in order for the release of the second edition of your book, Training Essentials for Ultra Running. I've got it here on my desk. I had to reinforce the desk to hold up the weight <laughs> of this book. It is <laughs> it is a monster of a book. Uh, and I love that about it. When you first emailed me about this book, you did communicate how it is very different from any other ultra book out there. And I was wondering, can you share some of the details on how unique this book is? Well, I mean, I think I can kind of go back to the original intention when I wrote the first edition of the book. And, um, you know, the, the co-author that I worked with at the time, Jim Rutberg, who, who's a good friend of mine, and he has written a number of training books in the endurance space and cycling and, and, and triathlon mainly. And he, he approached me with this idea of writing an ultramarathon training book for, for years. And I was very reluctant to, um, to, to take on the project primarily for two reasons. Um, the, the first one of which is I'm, I'm not a writer by trade. And I don't consider myself a prolific writer by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, I've written articles and I contribute in content and other forms and things like that. But taking on taking on a book was kind of a big ordeal for me. And in addition to that, I really, you know, I've been coaching for 15 years and, you know, it's debatable whether or not I had like the total experience to actually contribute, you know, to the space and in, in a manner that was going to be worthy of a uh, worthy of a book. But the second, uh, kind of hesitation that I had is, is I wanted to make sure that the title could live for a very long time and impact. And in fact, way past my coaching career. Um, I didn't want to do something that was just like a one and done, a one and done shot. I wanted to do something that could be iterated kind of over the course of time. And, and, and the second book is a, is, is really a manifestation of that second goal. Um, you know, we had the intent from the onset to continue to iterate it over the, over the course of time and, um, and update it with, you know, content and also as the audience develops as well, you know, these things, the audience is never static. 
uh, when you uh, when you get into it, especially from a, from an ultra running perspective. Um, but really, I feel it's the first, and I I would actually say the only. It's always hard to say if you're the first, but I'd say that it's the only comprehensive training book on ultra marathon training that's out there. Um, there it, to to date, you know, ultra marathon training has kind of evolved from this endless game of telephone where one person would say, Oh, this is how I trained for the Leadville trail 100. This is how you should train from Leadville trail 100 going way back to the like ultra, you know, the old, old ultra listserv days. It's evolved from that to, you know, blogs and anecdote anecdotes and articles. And this I felt was the first real shot at comprehensively, compiling all of what we know from the scientific literature that says how to train not only for ultra marathon, but for endurance sports in general, as well as practice. You know, I've been a coach now for over, uh, for over two decades and synthesizing the scientific literature with the coaching practice is always something that we're striving to do from a coaching perspective. And I, I really felt that the kind of the thing that's the most special about this is that we took, we took this approach where we didn't want it to just be a data dump of scientific literature. We, w- we wanted to represent the scientific literature accurately and consistently, as well as bring in what are the things that are the most practical for the end user to actually implement in their day-to-day training as they're preparing for these things. So if you going back to your original question, kind of on the uniqueness of it, I, I think that if I were to summarize it in, in a very quick soundbite, that really is it. It really is the this the 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 only work that at least I'm aware of, and many people have said the exact same thing. That really that really takes that comprehensive approach for how to train for a, from an ult, for an ultra marathon, taking in all the scientific literature, combining it with practice, and then looking at all of the different areas that affect ultra marathon, ultra marathon performance, which as you know, are, 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 are quite wide. I mean, it's like, you know, you've mentioned the book, you have to get a reinforcement on your desk. I mean, really it could be two or three times as big just because it's such a, it's, it's such a complicated sport to, to, to ultimately try to train for. So we try to distill it down as much as possible into the 500 some odd pages that are now sitting on your table. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you could certainly have a whole nother book's worth of content on the psychological side of training and racing and the nutrition side of things. But yeah, this book is over 520 pages. You have over 400 scientific references. And I love that you had to go through two different scientific reviews, one from Stephanie Howe, who is a former guest on the podcast, and uh, Nick Tiller, two PhDs. So I, I really appreciate the, the lengths to which you went to make sure that the information here is, is accurate and comprehensive and as ultra, as you put it in your email, as, as it could be. So uh, I really like that. Um, Jason, maybe we can talk about, you know, when it comes to the latest research, what's new in this edition of the book? Are there any different ideas? Have you changed your mind on some topics because of new research? Give us a little overview on some of those. Well, I I would say it's always, it's always evolving, right? Scientific literature is always trying to kind of like keep up with, you know, what's going on. 
And I, I illustrate this point very early in the book where the first year that I started working with ultramarathon athletes, there were exactly six papers published that year on on the sport of ultramarathon. That, that is hard. That's hardly any. Right. That's one every other month. And fast forward now to 2021, when I took a PubMed snapshot, there are, there are, there are well in excess of 130 or 140 scientific papers that are, that, that, that are being published. So 10 a month, right? Over 10 or 10 or 12 a month. And that in and of itself really illustrates how quickly we're kind of moving to understand better all of these aspects of, of, of how to, of how to train for ultra. You know, I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, uh, kind of at the onset of the first question, that a lot of ultramarathon training in the early 2000s, when I first started working with ultra runners, were kind of beg borrowed and stolen from other runners, right? This is what this runner did, and I'm going to adapt it this way. And this is what this other runner did, I'm going to adapt it this way. Oh, I heard that, you know, sucking on a peppermint candy is the way to solve, you know, stomach issues. So I'm going to try it and things like that. And, um, uh, the the second way that training was really adapted and stolen from uh, in the ultramarathon world was from other sports. And very early on in my in, in my coaching career with uh, with ultramarathon runners, we did have to rely on a lot of best practices from cycling, from the analogous uh, endurance sports, cycling, triathlon, and, and and marathon running to a certain extent. And those are very helpful but they will only take you so far because inevitably the modality is obviously different. You know, trail running uh, in particular is a different modality than, uh, than road running. Uh, and then in addition to that, uh, the duration is obviously uh, significantly different. So we're continuing to learn a whole lot about what happens when both of those things change within the scientific literature. And I'll give you, Rather than like pinpoint like one specific thing or two specific things because this area is so broad, the, the way that I like to illustrate this the most is is with a with a concept that most runners and most people who 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 train and most coaches will be very familiar with, and this is running economy. This has come to light particularly with the Nike Breaking Two project and all the super shoes and things like that, where. In the road running, in the marathon running world, running economy has has become this king and queen maker, right? We're doing everything that we can possibly do to optimize running recovery. We're putting carbon fiber plates in shoes. We've got these, you know, drafting, uh, you know, these kind of drafting strategies during these obscure projects. And even the fueling, a lot of these high carbohydrate fueling strategies is aimed at trying to optimize uh, running economy. Well, it turns out that in ultramarathon running, and we're just starting to learn this, learn or learn a little bit more about this over the course of the past three or four years. It turns out that running economy isn't quite the king and queen maker in ultramarathon running as it is in marathon running. And in fact, the literature suggests that you, that runners are better served intentionally sacrificing running economy in order to improve other aspects. So they would sacrifice running economy with heavier shoes and shoes that don't offer as much energy return as we do in, in the marathon world in order to protect their muscles from muscular breakdown. 
that in and of itself, that, that very simple stark contrast between running economy, literally being the king and queen maker, the championship maker in the road running world, and being something that you would sacrifice intentionally in the ultramarathon world, starting to see that bifurcation of strategies, I think is something that it, that, that, that is quite amazing. And it truly represents this idea that was honestly a philosophy that I took a little bit of a leap of faith at, you know, maybe 15 years ago when I was developing a lot of this stuff, that we can't treat ultra marathon running as an extension of road running. We can't treat it from a training perspective as merely a long marathon because the successors and the determinants of success and the limiting factors are actually quite different once you start to go up in a duration. And if anything, the literature is starting to tease that out, is that the, there is this stark contrast between marathon running and in ultramarathon running. Yeah, I find that really interesting. The differences, you know, I think a lot of us have heard the phrase running is running, fitness is fitness. And if, it becomes very easy to fall into this trap of, yes, you know, a 50 mile ultra marathon is just like two marathons back to back. And so you can train for it in sort of that extended way. But, you know, I remember reading a long time ago, maybe a couple of years ago that in trail ultra marathons, just like you were saying, it's actually more beneficial to have a more variable foot strike because sometimes a heel strike is a good thing. It's going to protect your calves and your lower legs from that muscular damage that you had mentioned. And, and I'm just wondering, is that kind of a, a very small tactical example of this phenomenon that when it comes to these long distances, you know, the general wisdom that you might get for a track or road race doesn't always work? Yeah. So the foot strike thing is actually quite interesting. And it's a, re a reference that I actually use in the book. I believe this came from Guillaume Mie's lab. And uh, I'll, I'll send you a link after we finish recording uh, to this particular piece of research that they actually did on Killian Jarnay, out of all people. It was, a it was a case study where they hooked him up with a bunch of accelerometers or, or on his lower limbs. And they actually measured how variable his foot strike was during a mountain ultramarathon. And it turns out he's constantly switching from a forefoot strike to a heel strike to a midfoot strike and back and forth and back and forth and kind of all like all the way around. And the, the kind of the totality of the literature that, uh, that exists in this area indicates exactly what you just said is that runners are well served or mountain trail ultra runners are well served to train such that they can accommodate for a more variable foot strike in order to sit in order to kind of delay the muscular fatigue that is going on and that's associated with just having one type of gait striking pattern and once again you con you contrast that with the marathon world and it is all about running economy optimization right we're trying to find the most you know effective or the most economical foot strike possible and there's been you know, innumerable, you know, pinheads and research and you name it that has tried to like illuminate which one is the best for a particular athlete or across everybody. And I'm saying that in kind of a joking way, because there probably is not, it, there is not one across everybody, but we can say in the ultra marathon world, a skill that you can develop is the capability of being able to intentionally switch between all of those with the very deliberate 
strategy or the very deliberate outcome of trying to delay muscular fatigue around around the lower limbs. It is a quite a, quite a fascinating area and just one of those very specific things that I mentioned earlier where ultramarathon training is going to significantly not just my, just not just in a minor way but significantly deviate from traditional marathon training. Right. And you need, you need different tools for different jobs. And particularly with these types of races, you might be running downhill, you might be running uphill, you might be running on very technical terrain or very smooth dirt. And if you're married to one type of foot strike for the entirety of the race, you're just going to be in situations where it's not the ideal foot strike. So that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. And I'm glad that the research is, is really teasing this out. Now, Jason, one of the things that you mentioned earlier were something like, uh, you know, the limiting factors. And I found a section in your book particularly interesting was the chapter on failure points. And this seems like a very uh, similar concept. And I'd love to hear some of what those failure points are when it comes to ultra running. You know, what are the, the major things that runners experience in a race that, are causing them to drop out or causing them to have worse performances. Yeah. So sh- shout out to somebody who I just mentioned earlier. So this is Guillaume Mie or those of the, those of us that know him in the industry. It's sports science Guy. If you guys follow him on Twitter, you will be well served in your ultra marathon training. In 2011, he took what, what many consider, including myself, the original stab at what are the limiting factors of ultra marathon performance? And we've all kind of been through this in the marathon world, right? The velocity that you can achieve in any sort of endurance event is dictated by your VO2 max, the fraction of that VO2 max that you can actually utilize, which is, uh, which is related to your lactate threshold and the cost of running. So those, those kind of three variables, we go back to Nike breaking two and they're trying to optimize all those three. And it, it, it's very formulaic, right? He took a stab at this and he came up with this multifactorial uh, framework of limiting factors. And at, at the time, it was equal parts because the, because of where the state of the research was in 2011. It was equal parts theoretical and also drawn from the scientific literature that existed at the time. And the the kind of the the heroes of that or the bigger things of that are first and foremost, GI distress. So your ability to take in calories. Second one, muscle and osteoarticular damage. So damage to the muscles and tendons and things like that, 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 that happened during the course of the event. The third one is neuromuscular fatigue. So not just, you know, glycogen depletion or aerobic, uh, or aerobic capacity or anything like that. Literally how much your neuromuscular system is fatiguing over the, uh, over, over the course of the race. And then you've got as a, like a second tier, what I would consider your more traditional endurance physiological variables, aerobic capacity, maximum aerobic capacity, running economy, all of these things that we traditionally associate with the 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 more classic endurance disciplines of marathon running, cycling, and triathlon. But my point with that is 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 those things come in as a a secondary or maybe even a tertiary tier of the things that ultimately affect 
um, uh, performance. And these other things start to rise, start to rise to the top that we previously in an, at least in an endurance capacity wouldn't really pay much lip service to. So those are the things that we, that we traditionally look at to say, okay, these are the things that impact ultramarathon training. How do we actually ready the athlete for those events using different types of training interventions to make, to make them better athletes? And once again, this, this is starts to set up this stark contrast between marathon running and ultramarathon running from a, from, from very, from a pragmatic point of view in terms of what athletes are doing day to day. Yeah. So it, it sounds like one of the big limiting factors tends to be muscular damage. And, you know, we were talking about that a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, varying your foot strike as a way to limit muscular damage. Would you say that that is likely one of the top reasons that ultra runners typically have problems? And, you know, I, I tend to think of this as someone who's never run an ultra marathon. I've capped myself at the marathon, but I would assume that muscular damage has got to be one of the number one reasons that runners are really struggling in the later miles of an ultra marathon. And, you know, it's one of those things that can be very tricky to to, to navigate in the moment. And I would assume it's something that's very tricky to train as you're getting ready for these events, because you don't really want to be out there for hundred miles, you know, every weekend getting ready for a hundred mile ultra. <laughs> that doesn't okay. seem like a good idea. Here's a, here's a really good point. So you're absolutely right. That is one of the bigger limiting factors and that the literature teases that out when they look at, uh, uh, when they actually look at the muscular damage from an ultra marathon, it is wide, wildly variable. You know, we look at whether we take a muscle biopsy or we use a surrogate measure, which are creatine kinase levels, and we're not going to get into is that a valid surrogate or, or whatever. But the the discrepancy from one athlete to the next in terms of the amount of muscle damage that they are exhibiting irrespective of how we're actually measuring those is wild. I mean, it's sometimes 10 or a hundred fold, which you typically wouldn't see with any sort of other limiting factor, uh, type of, uh, type of phenomenon. The really neat thing that you just mentioned is that the training for that isn't as arduous as you would actually think then we can go back to some of the very original research on eccentric exercise to pull away some clues for how to train for this. So for the listeners, most of, not all of, but most of the damage, the muscular damage that is occurring during the course of an ultramarathon is a byproduct of the descending that happens during the course of the race. So running uphill, no problem, right? That's typically not a very... That's, that's typically not a very damaging type of activity. But when you run downhill and you're eccentrically loading the muscles because of the downhill nature of, of your gait and your foot strike, that tends to be that tends to be the activity that creates the most damage. And in a research setting, that's actually how they do it when they want to test a particular type of intervention for its efficacy in terms of preventing muscle damage or even the sensation of muscle damage known, known as DOMS, the protocol that they will use uh, uh, in an endurance application is, is they just set the treadmill at a downhill incline and have people run down as hard as they can or they do it, or, or they do it in the field. It turns out that the dose response 
for eccentric exercise is actually quite favorable. And w- what I mean by that is it takes a very small dose of eccentric exercise to produce a robust adaptation. And so much so there's this there's this term in physiology called the inoculation effect when they have when they have studied this. And all that means is is one bout of eccentric exercise is enough to provide a protective effect against subsequent bouts of eccentric exercise. And the way they've studied this is classically in a strength training setting where they're having athletes lower a weight with a bicep curl or maybe with a leg extension or something like that. But the the same principle applies to a certain extent. I'm being very careful with my words here. The same principle applies to a certain extent in an endurance application where, where a very low dose of endurance eccentric exercising running downhill provides a very robust adaptation to prevent subsequent damage to the muscles via that endurance exercise so we don't have to go and so the ramification for that from a training perspective is we don't have to go outside and hammer ourselves downhill and do copious amounts of downhill work and things like that yes it is good to do that if you're training for a mountain ultra marathon but we don't need to do it to such an extent that it's compromising the rest of training, as you were mentioning earlier, in terms of making yourself constantly sore and you're missing out on other training bouts just because this this one activity is so um, is so fatiguing and, and, and causes such soreness within the muscles. We can be very surgical with how we implement those types of training interventions because the effect is so robust. Can you be a little more specific about those exact training interventions? Like what might you put into a runner's training plan who's getting ready for a mountainous ultramarathon? And, you know, the goal is exactly this. Let's try to inoculate this person against the effects of eccentric loading. So that, that's a really great practical question. So normally in training, we talk about overload, right? We want to overload the system somehow in order to, in order to create an adaptation and, I think, and this is definitely an I think statement, that all the overload that is necessary in terms of getting an athlete prepared for a mountainous ultra is simply to match or get close to the elevation gain, elevation loss of the race in training. So let's just take, for example, the Western States 100. If you look at the course profile there, it has about 400 feet of elevation gain and elevation loss per mile. If I have an athlete training for the Western States 100, I will try to get that athlete to match that in training as close as they can, given their normal training conditions and any sort of constraints that they have around that. I don't need to do more than that, meaning I don't need to have 600 feet of elevation change per mile in order to adapt that athlete to it. In fact, I can usually undershoot it a little bit by about maybe 20, 25% in order to get the right adaptation. So this concept of overload, right? We don't need to take in a literal sense for athletes training for mountain ultra marathons. You don't have to literally overload your system with vertical, which is the way that we talk about it, right? You don't have to do more vertical or more change per mile. All you need to do is just get close. And it's typically enough to get the adapt to get the adaptation that you want. That's a really simple, practical, and if we talk about the the 
the the concept is the concept of specificity of training, matching the elevation gain, elevation loss as close as you can, and the fact that you don't need to do more than that in training is probably one of the strongest things, the strongest training concepts that you can apply for a trail and ultra runner. And you, like I said, you don't need to do any more than that. You can just do it on your endurance and your normal runs. And that takes care of 90% of the adaptation that you, that, that you want for those climbs and those descents. I love that. That is just so practical and, and probably something that a lot of runners can, can figure out and implement themselves in their training. Now that leads me to another question though, Jason of, you know, how does a flatlander train for a mountainous <laughs> ultra marathon because this is something that you address in the book and it, it's something that even you know when i had first moved to denver i i went and i tried the golden gate 30 uh dirty 30 yeah. 50k yeah. and i did have to drop out of that race but i was floored by the amount of elevation gain and loss over the course of that race. And, and I simply wasn't prepared for it. So, uh, if I'm ever going to make my ultra comeback, I I definitely need the answer to this one. (laughs) It's not a problem at all. That's a hard race. I've done that a few times. Um, so this is probably the most common question that I get asked. I live in Florida and I'm training for the Leadville trail 100, maybe not specifically Florida, but replace it with some sort of flat level, uh, uh, flat level state or flat level area. Um, and so I offer two pieces of advice and this is in order of priority. First off is get as fit as possible. Just go and run and run as much as you can and have good training architecture. All of the fundamental things that we would do with an athlete applies irrespective of their training environment as compared to their race environment. So just go and train smart and get as fit, fit as possible. Fitness is always your primary weapon against anything that you're going to encounter during trail and ultra running. And that's irrespective of whether it's the altitude, right? I just mentioned Leadville Trail 100. That's at that's 10,000 feet. That is the terrain, uphill, downhill. That's the heat. Fitness is always going to be your biggest weapon to combat any of those types of, uh, of, of ailments or headwinds that you're going to experience during the race. The second thing that you can do if you're a flatlander, and this really takes advantage of, of, of what I was just mentioning earlier in terms of the inoculation effect, you can get a lot of the adaptations that you want with some very simple training camps. So if you can carve out two days or three days and go to a mountainous area and just do some training out there, it doesn't have to be a lot, but just some training and try to time it six weeks before the event, three or four weeks before the event to take advantage of this carryover effect from all of the eccentric exercise that you've been doing. That, in a lot of cases, can serve you very well and get a lot of the adaptations that you're getting because it really, it really does not take much. All the literature starts to show this. There's a very robust response for a very for a relatively low dose. And so for the athletes that are living at sea level or living in the flats and trying to train for a mountainous ultra, do everything you can to try to carve out two days, three days. It can make a big, big, 
big difference in the ultimate race come. That's probably all you needed. All you needed is probably just a few days <laughs> climbing and descending and getting those legs ready for it in, in order to survive. So those, those two things, I think, are the, the those are the primary things that I would encourage any flatlander to do to get ready for a, for a mountain uh, mountainous trail event. Now, if we were to imagine that this hypothetical flatlander just couldn't get out to the mountains, you know, maybe they do live in Florida and they can't take a plane ride out to the mountains. Are there maybe not primary training strategies, but maybe some secondary strategies, maybe with eccentric work, maybe with some certain types of strength training, somehow we can further inoculate ourselves against that stress of all that downhill running if we can't really do much downhill running at all. Yeah, so the, I mean, this gets into the contrived area, in my in, in in my opinion. And there are athletes in this situation, right? They can't go do a training camp; they're kind of stuck wherever they are. So, strategy number one still prevails. And remember, those are in order of priority. Your fitness is still your 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 biggest weapon. Now we get into all the contrived things, and they range the gamut from. I'm going to do box step ups or I'm going to get in the weight room or I am just going to do eccentric work in the weight room. I'm going to skip rope. I'm going to do lunges. I'm going to do lunge matrices and all these things. And to be honest with you, I don't think that those are worth it. I don't think that those provide, although the inoculation effect is, is, uh, um, uh, takes a relatively low dose. I don't think that any of those are in a close enough mode meaning trail running is the primary mode. And now we're switching the mode over to more of a strength training mode. I don't think the mode is close enough with any of those contrived activities to really make much of a difference. So I would rather athletes just focus on their fitness, get to the starting line as fit as possible, leave all this contrived nonsense kind of to, to, to the side and then just let it be there. If you like to do strength training or you like to do box step ups because it like makes you feel stronger or whatever. Great. It, I would, I would say that the correlation between that and any sort of real effect that you actually feel out on an ultra marathon course course is spur, is spurious at best. So I would not go out of my way at all to do any of those. I would just, I just replace it with more miles, to be honest with you. Like if you really want to get down to brass tacks, if you want to spend, you know, twice a week doing box step ups for 30 minutes, I think you're going to get a better adaptation just by doing more miles. <laughs> I like that. I, I won't train from an X ultra using only plyometrics then Jason. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, there, I mean, there are people that, that I get the sentiment, right? Because you always want, this is like a grass is greener thing, right? You always want what you don't have. If you don't have vertical in your backyard, you want some way to kind of recreate it. And we're always willing to like stretch our belief system for these things, for these things that we don't have that we think are material to, 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 to the performance. And I think in many of those cases, when we're contriving all of these different strategies, it it really is too, I think it really is too big of a stretch. And if you look at the just the very simple forces, you know, it doesn't take more than an elementary school of biomechanics degree to kind of understand this. If you just take the very simple forces and compare them in 
trail and ultra running, running down a hill versus doing a box step versus doing a box step up or a reverse lunge or whatever sort of eccentric exercise that you can kind of recreate in the gym. They're really not all that similar. They're actually wild. They're actually wildly different. So when I say it doesn't fit the mode, that's coming from a biomechanics standpoint and looking at how much force are we producing? What are the angles that we're producing at? Does it actually ready the muscle in the way that we want it to be readied? And kind of the answer when you look at it from a neutral perspective is is is, re- is really no. Now, I, when I say these types of things, um, can I go off on just one like tangent here really quick? <laughs> I welcome tangents, Jason. Let's do it. When I say these types of things, the strength training community starts to throw tomatoes at me. It's freaking hilarious. Like every time I mention something like this, I'm not saying that strength training is useless. What I'm saying is, is if you're using those mo- these modalities specifically to ready the athlete for the eccentric demands of an ultra marathon, it's probably a stretch of the application. If you want to use strength training in another application, I just want to be able to lift my kids up, chase them around the soccer field, put my luggage in the overhead bin, whatever. If you want to use strength training for any of those other applications, great. Go go hog wild after it. But if you're saying that very specifically, these modalities are going to help from a from a readying my muscles to to try to deal with the damaging nature of an ultra marathon, I, I think that the correlation is just very spurious. And it's certainly not as good as just going and doing a training camp. I, I honestly think that a lot of people could get away with just with just doing that. I love it. And Jason, I really appreciate your scientific mind, the way that you qualify things and want to be very precise with your language. That is something that resonates with me. Uh, I am enjoying asking you some very specific questions about training strategies. So let's say these are really specific, man. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to keep going. Um, You know, a lot of runners are familiar with the general rule that if you're going to run a marathon, you should probably run about 20 miles before the marathon to make sure that you can finish. Now, of course, there's some exceptions and caveats with this, but I think it's a good general rule, a good general guideline for most runners. Are there any similar guidelines for the maximum distance long run before certain distance ultras? Like, do you have runners try to get a certain mileage for their longest run before of 50k 50 miler 100 miler are there any guidelines like that that you follow this is the second most commonly asked question you're like hitting all the top ones that i get every week uh so the answer is no um and i think that this longest long run question is a it, it is a direct leftover from marathon training for just what you mentioned right every long every marathon program has a long run of between 16 at the low end and maybe 20 at the high end right we'll kind of give it that range and it's ubiquitous, right? I mean, you, you can you can see it everywhere. There's very, very few people that don't do that. And because it is so ubiquitous, it, there's a natural translation to say, oh, what's my longest long run going to be during during an ultra marathon? Let's just take the same, let's just take the same percentage. It's 75% or something like that. So that means that your long run for a hundred miles is going to be 75 miles or something like that, or hundred K. I look at this from a completely pragmatic point of view. The primary reasons to have a, a super long, long run are not for the physiological adaptations that you're going to get. And I'm going to get into why that is at the, during the second part of this answer. But the primary reason that you want to do those types of activities is to create kind of a dress rehearsal as much as possible for race day from a 
nutrition point of view, how your muscles are going to feel. We just spent a lot of time talking about that. All of these things that you are not normally able to recreate in training because we're time limited, you want to get as close as possible or you feel like you need to get as close as possible to that. What the right duration for that is, you know, maybe it's half the distance or you're training for a 50 mile, maybe it's 25 miles, you're training for a hundred mile, or maybe it's like 60 miles or 50 miles. But the vein of it should to be, should be to recreate these things that you don't normally recreate during, during, during a normal long run. The reason that you shouldn't come at this from a physiological point of view, meaning I'm going to do this super long, long run because it's going to elicit some, you know, superior adaptation as compared to whatever else you want to do that day. That's because we, it's just math. If you look at the amount, if you look at the amount of time that you're spending doing that long run that is in excess of a normal long run. And what I mean by that is just, let's say your normal long runs four hours, right? You want to do a super long, long run. And that's, let's just say it's 14 hours. I'm going to really exaggerate the numbers here, right? And plus that makes the math easy. So that means the Delta between normal and super long is 10 hours. If you look at that 10 hours in comparison to the entirety of training, all of the hours that you do building up to this ultra marathon, it is a very, very, very small fraction of that total. And if you want to say that that very small fraction actually makes a material difference in the overall physiological adaptations that you're getting, I've got a bridge to sell you to, you know, somewhere off the keys in Florida or something like that. It's just not, it's just not practice. It's just not a significant enough dose for one particular run to really get a robust adaptation from. So my point with all this is, is the lens that we need to look at these long runs through is an experiential one. And as an extension of that strategy, what that means is that means a lot of newer runners need to do those things almost at the expense of their day-to-day training just to learn what it feels like, learn what their nutrition program or learn how their nutrition program is going to react and adapt in those situations versus the runners that have like myself, right? 20, 30, 40 ultra marathon types of finishes because they've kind of been there, done that. The need for them to go experience these long, long runs are, is markedly reduced, although their capacity to do them is markedly increased because of their experience it actually presents this juxtaposition. So I don't think to, to answer your question directly, I don't think that there's, there certainly is not, there certainly is not a magical number or a magical percentage of your longest long run as compared to your race, uh, the, the distance or the duration of your race. I do think that you should set those long, long runs up almost solely or all, or primarily at least from the viewpoint that you want to get yourself in a position to really test out your race day systems in a way that you are not going to do them during day-to-day training. And the limiting factor with all that is just how much time availability do you have during the day, right? I mean, that, that's the, that's the thing with most people is if you're going to go out and do it. I was out at the doing, I was out in Arizona this past weekend out on the Cocodona 250 course, which is a race that I'm going to do in May. And I'm just limited by time. 
I can only spend so many hours on the trail before I have to come back to my van and start doing work again. <laughs> so most people are very similar in that as they only have so much time they can carve out during the day. And that's going to, that's going to, that's going to predominantly limit them. And, and, and I don't think that that's a bad limitation because most people can kind of carve out what that longest long run is going to be and try to challenge those experiences. Yeah, it, it sounds very much like the the dose response discussion we were having earlier, where you, you don't need to go run 100 miles to ensure that you can run 100 miles, you can run dramatically less than that. And then the the difference or the delta between what you did in training and what you're going to do on race day, it, it just comes together. C- can you speak to that? Because I think a lot of runners, especially first time ultra marathoners, psychologically, have a hard time grappling with the fact that, okay, I ran 57 miles in training. How the hell am I going to run a hundred in this race? Even if, you know, coach Jason Coop is saying I can, I, I have this fear. How would you address that fear? This is, this is so fascinating because this is actually a part in the book that I spend a lot of time uh, discussing. And it's, it's rooted in this performance model called the psychobiological model of fatigue which a researcher by the name of Samuel Mayorka is largely kind of, is largely kind of flushed out. And it, it turns out that endurance athletes are very, are very good at being able to modulate their efforts over or it, within durations that are about two hours or less in length. And you think about this from a practical perspective, right? I go out and I do a workout. I do a tempo run. I do a series of intervals. When you're performing that task, you are constantly drawing this internal line from the exertion level that you're experiencing at that moment. Oh my God, I'm going really hard to theoretically what that exertion level is going to be at the end of a task. So say I'm doing a marathon, I'm, you know, 10 K into it. I'm thinking to myself consciously and subconsciously, okay, this is my exertion level now. I've got 20 more miles to run. I can draw a point between those two lines. And is that within my maximum tolerable exertion level? And we modulate our intensity throughout the course of that task according, according to that constant, constantly drawing and redrawing of that point. Where am I at? Where am I willing to go? Am I going hard enough or can I regulate that, that effort? Because ultras are so, and that, that is a phenomenon known as the perceived exertion endpoint interaction. And actually is a, actually is a term in, in sports psychology. Turns out an ultra marathon, the distance or the duration, sorry, the duration between where I am evaluate, evaluating where I'm at right now and the end point is so big that we are just shit. At do at at converting this perceived exertion endpoint interaction because the task duration is just simply so long. We can't look at okay, I'm ten miles into a hundred mile race. I feel like this now. What am I going to feel like in another ninety miles? That whole strategy, which we are ingrained to do via all the workouts that we've done in our own innate biology starts to become a failure point. And so ultramarathon athletes first need to realize that that's a failure point, that this natural tendency that they have of this, of the perceived exertion endpoint interaction, that's constantly drawing and redrawing this exertion line from where you're at to theoretically where you're going to be somewhere down the line is going to fail you in an ultra. 
The second thing that they need to come to realize is that there is going to be an element of unknown. That is absolutely the case. You just, you know, we just went through this thing. It's not, you know, appropriate to run a hundred miles in training to, in order to experience everything you're going to experience during a hundred mile ultra marathon. You just have to come to grips with the fact that there is going to be in a lot of cases, a lot of unknown. And in most cases, more unknown than known. That's what's super trippy, right? Especially when you get into the longer ultras, the 100Ks and the 100 miles, your longest training activity from a duration standpoint, uh, in particular, if you look at a time duration, in many cases is way less than half of the race duration. And so you have more unknown than known when you're kind of comparing it to, um, uh, to an ultra marathon. And so ultra marathons are ultra marathons are very well served to go through this very cliche type of sports psychology where they're trying to stay in the moment. And that is a very practical and efficacious way to, uh, to, to, to not only go through during training, but actually to practice that during the, uh, during, during the race itself where you don't care what's 20 miles, what's 30 miles, what's 40 miles down the line, because quite frankly, you suck at trying to predict the future. You need to worry about what's one minute down the line, two minutes down the line, four minutes down the line, one mile down the line, more, more discrete chunks. And so I I don't make any bones about the fact that people that are just getting into ultra running are going to be faced with this inevitability of having a lot of unknown that they're going to experience during race day. And they have to embrace that during the training process by, by creating certain activities where you're intentionally focused on staying in the moment and making sure that you're not getting too far ahead of yourself. You're almost like trying to violate your own internal instincts and biology by creating these perceived exertion endpoint interactions constantly in training, you're trying to de- almost deprogram that from a training perspective by trying to stay in the moment and prescribing things by rate of perceived exertion, I think is a good way to, uh, uh, to, to, to do that as well. But I think the first thing is just coming to grips with the reality that you're going to have a lot of unknown in the situation and you're not going to be able to predict things certainly as accurately or precisely as you can in a, in a marathon setting, which, which tends to be a big failure point with a lot of ultra runners. Yeah. It sounds easier said than done. It sounds like you're throwing yourself <laughs> into the void a little bit when you're, it is, it is, it is. It is. I don't want to pay, I don't want to pay lip service to it. I mean, especially runners that come from, I came from a collegiate running background and I was a very markedly average runner in college. And I had to come to grips to this as, as well as I was, uh, as I was kind of dipping my toe into the ultra marathon waters for, for it's, it kind of serves as a little bit of a disservice to what I would call traditionally trained endurance athletes, whenever they move up into the ultra setting, all of these things that have served them very well in terms of pacing and exertion that they experience at those shorter distances, we're almost back. It's not only, uh, um, it's not only not efficacious for them to use, it actually backfires on them when they move into, into an ultra setting. So it is a very, conscientious, uh, I call it a deprogramming that you have to go through to, to really perform well at these ultras and kind of get over this, this, this huge volume of unknown that you're eventually going to have. 
Yeah. And I admittedly, full disclosure, I, I think that was one of my biggest limiting factors when I attempted that dirty 30, 50K back in 2015. So it was a little while ago. Uh, because I still very much had the mindset of a track and a cross country athlete, you know, the, the gun goes off and it's a mad dash to the finish. You sort of have to kind of take that with a grain of salt when, it, when you're running for four hours or five hours or six hours. And, and I certainly, you know, probably shouldn't have been running behind Tim Olson for the first 17 miles of the race, <laughs> but, um, I was feeling frisky and <laughs> I think I need to, uh, reset those mental expectations. If, if I attempt an ultra again, I think that really strung me. Here's the other thing that's actually quite opposite in ultra is most of the time from a racing perspective, you're racing at a markedly lower intensity than you are day-to-day training. I mean, you and I, we go out on a, on a recovery run together. Uh, just today we're similar fitness level, right? We can go out on a recovery run, easiest run, absolutely possible. That's still going to be like 20 to 40% faster than we would race a hundred mile, a hundred mile race at, right? And so that discrepancy alone, just in the intensity becomes problematic because not a, not a lot of runners and you have this experience train consistently at such a low intensity and they get into the race and they don't think about how unsustainable just their normal endurance run, their normal recovery run is in, intensity is as this duration gets so big. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I struggled from a muscular perspective too, especially with the elevation loss in this particular 50 K and it was after about two miles, a very rocky descent, uh, at too quick of a pace, as we all know that, you know, my IT band was not happy with me after that. Um, Jason, I want to talk about one more detailed training strategy that I would love your opinion on. And that's the, the back-to-back long run. What is your opinion on this training strategy and and do you have any best practices for it? So I like back-to-back long runs for reasons that are a little bit different than the ones that are normally cited. Most most people will want to do back-to-back long runs because they want to experience the sensation of quote-unquote running on tired legs. And I mentioned earlier that, that your long runs should be viewed at through the lens of this experiential component. And that can act absolutely be 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 part of the reason why you do a back to back long run is to have to have some sort of experiential component associated or 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 tied to it. But I think you get that from training normally. You know, you're going to be tired at some point. You're going to have to run an, an endurance run or a, or an interval run or something like that with some sort of fatigue on your legs and this sensation especially for experienced athletes of running on tired legs, A, you don't really get that close to it uh, or you don't really get close to what you're going to experience during an ultra marathon uh, and, and that type of training activity. <laughs> but, but B, you get a lot of that sensation just through norm, normal training. Personally, I like back-to-back long runs for the concentration effect that it has on improvement. And we see this time and time again in the literature, mainly in high intensity types of settings, where if you take the same amount of training load, whether it's an interval workout or a series of interval workouts, and you compress it over a shorter amount of time, there's a more robust response associated with, uh, with that activity even when they're load matched. And so the classic example that I, that I give on this is I can't remember where they did this 
cyclists or cross country skiers. I think it was cyclists. And they took two types of training patterns. They they took one, which which we'll call the standard pattern, which was two hard workouts a week for four weeks. Right. So Tuesday, Thursday, it's typical college program, right? You run your intervals on Tuesday, you run your intervals on Thursday, you do some sort of long run on the weekend. They did that for four weeks and that was one group. Second group concentrated all of those hard efforts, the same work matched workouts. So the exact same workouts at the exact same relative workload, uh, workload. And they did four the first week. No, sorry. They did five the first week two the second week, one the third week, and one the fourth week, which that's really hard, right? I mean, you do five hard workouts in one week. That's a little bit of, of, of an intentional over-exaggeration of what you, would, what you would do from a practical standpoint. And it turns out that concentrated group, right, the blocked group, as they, as they would say in the literature, had a more robust adaptation at the end of the at the end of the training intervention. And we see this time and time again, whether it's associated with high intensity or even with moderate intensity or low intensity. So there's this concentrated effect where one plus one equals greater than two if you're able to compress it over a shorter, uh, over a shorter time frame. So that's the first reason why I really like back-to-back longer runs is to kind of take advantage of this concentration effect. The, se- the second thing is, is more of a pragmatic point of view is if you've got the time, let's put the time in, you know, and a lot of athletes are time limited, they're time crunched. And, and, you know, as a coach, volume tends to be the overall thing that modulates improvement. You can do more volume, you can do more kilojoules of work, more time, however you want to, uh, however you want to define it. That's good. That's typically going to lead to the most amount of improvement. If I could get an athlete that'll do 12 hours a week versus 10 hours a week consistently, irrespective of the internal architecture, the 12 hour week runner will typically will, will typically improve more. So that's the second reason I like these back to back long runs is usually it forces a little bit more volume out of it because you're going to carve time out of the day and it's a special thing and you can kind of like push some other things to the side. It almost creates like a mini like a mini, uh, mini training camp effect. So for the athletes that are out there that are considering doing these back-to-back long runs, yes, absolutely. The second thing is you don't have to incorporate any intensity into them. You can take them as easy as possible. And with this concentration effect, a lot of times it's more beneficial to take them a little at a little bit lower intensity or a little bit slower than you normally would a normal single long run, just so you can get more out of both of those, uh, both of those sessions, both of those sessions back to back. So yeah, I, I use it. I'll also, I'll also use it in triple. So three in a row as well. Um, we, that's our training camp. We have a training camp here in, uh, Colorado Springs on Memorial day every weekend. And it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, where people come and they'll, they'll, they'll nor like the average is they'll about triple their daily volume and they can do it because they're in a camp setting and they don't have work going on and, you know, kids running around and all this stuff that normally kind of detracts from their training time and their total amount of energy availability and stuff like that. Um, and, and they hand and they handle the workload quite well. So yeah, absolutely. If you can carve the time out to do some of these longer back-to-back stuffs, or even if it's, if it's in triple, I, I think that it's a good activity. And there's because you're intentionally limiting the intensity. It's typically, and some people view this as ironic. It's typically a lower risk activity just because the intensity gets dropped down so so much. And what I mean by an overall injury risk, typically you look at those acute you know, spikes in workload 
as things that you want to avoid from a injury prevention standpoint. For whatever reason with these, because the intensity drops down so much, it, temp- it tends to be not as problematic. Well, that's good to know. Um, when you're structuring these back-to-back long runs, is there are there some best practices in terms of you know, should the first day be longer than the second day? Should you do a mountainous run the first day and a flat run the second day? Or, you know, is, is this like baking? You can do it anyway. And, you know, you, you might just come out with a different type of cake. <laughs> I hate these cooking analogies that we use in training. Um, <laughs> we tend to use them all the time. I use them too. Anyway, um, I, I always take when I'm, when I'm trying to ideally design these, I always take a hardest workout first approach. So whatever you're trying to do, whatever is the harder one, and typically the harder one is dictated by volume and then secondarily by vertical. Most of the time these are done in the same area, so the amount of vertical change per mile is going to be very, very, very very similar. So then it's just down to a volume proposition. I I tend to do that first, and that reduces the risk that I was mentioning earlier. There is a little bit of an increase in risk when you try to take on these uh, super high AQ workloads, um, that, that are a, a large deviation from your normal long runs by doing the lo- the harder one of those first, you're essentially ensuring that you have that, 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 that they're done on, on a little bit fresher legs, right? So you're not compounding all of these different, um, uh, all of these potentially different net, different negative consequences, onto the tail end. So you're fatigued, you might be low on glycogen, you have more muscle damage, you're not trying to create a bigger acute training load across all of those variables at the same time. So that's the first thing is I typically will try to orchestrate the hardest one first. And the hardest one is normally the longer, um, the longer of the two runs. And then I think that from, uh, from uh it the second question that i get in this is how much of a deviation from my normal long run can i normally absorb and here's where i actually actually counsel athletes to do a little bit more than i think that they think that they can and this is a direct reflection of seeing this kind of from a practical standpoint at our camps and having this play out with athletes where I have no problem doubling or sometimes even quadrupling what their quote unquote normal long run would be on any particular weekend. So let's just say their normal long run is two and a half hours, right? I would have no problem with an athlete jumping from two and a half hours to five hours in one week. I think experienced ultra runners can kind of handle that. The intensity, the intensity of most of these is relatively low. So there's a, there's a low, uh, risk of injury and I don't think it becomes problematic from a overload perspective because typically you're front end loading the, the, the beginning of the next week with, with, with some sort, with some sort of recovery. Now, I don't think that you should do that every single week, right? Or maybe even every other week, but I certainly wouldn't hesitate if you have a long history of training and you're, you know, kind of like rock solid at this two to three hour type of duration, I wouldn't hesitate at all bumping that up by double or two and a half for any particular part of that double back to back long run. So a six hour run one day and then a two or four hour run uh, uh, the next day would be the equivalent in, in, in that situation. I think that mo- most athletes that are that that have ultra marathon type of experience 
are, are capable of handling those big bumps up. And that's once again, going back to where, way back at the beginning of this conversation, you would never see that in the marathon training world, right? You never see somebody jump from like an eight mile run to a 16 mile long run, like all of a sudden over one weekend. I mean, people would look at that and be like, this is the worst coach ever. But from a trail and ultra running perspective, it's, it's actually quite, quite manageable. And also I think beneficial for the athletes to be able to handle those abrupt, uh, uh, acute increases in, in, in workload. It sounds like it's primarily a function of the intensity being very low and maybe even the surface that the runner is, is training on, you know, a little bit more of a forgiving surface, a little bit more of a variable surface. So you're not experiencing the same exact stress on your feet and lower legs, just step after step after step. And it, it, are those two of the more major things that allow this dramatic spike in distance? It's really the intensity. That's the, that's the dominating factor there is, is the intensity is just so relatively low that um, it, it enables the runner to handle it. Now, that being said, you've got to keep a eye on that if you're prescribing that as a coach, or even if you're DIYing it yourself and you can't, you can't kind of go nuts with it. But if you're running your long runs at a relatively modest intensity or low intensity anyway, ex- simply extending the duration is usually, like I said, it's it's not as problematic as you would think it is having looked at it on paper for the very first time. And trust me, what going back to my camp example, every time I put this on paper for a new camp athlete, they get their minds blown. They're, I, there's no way I can do this. This is three times my normal long run. And I'm just like, Hey, just trust me, just get here. This is what everybody does. It's very, it's, it's, it's very, very common. And yeah, sure enough, they get here. It's no problem. And they kind of go away from the experience going, Oh, wow. Like this is actually truly what I'm capable of. And a lot of that is it's just simply a byproduct of this traditional endurance you know, the 10% rule or kind of whatever rule of thumb you want to put on it, we're just completely violating, <laughs> violating that in every way, shape and form. And it just takes a while to get over that psychology. One of the things I'm learning from this conversation, Jason, is that ultra marathons are very different from other types of running races. And we have to treat them differently if you want to be able to excel and succeed at these distances. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I just felt like every minute we had such a juicy nugget that I think is going to help our audience better prepare for ultra marathons. And we really just barely scratched the surface of your book. Uh, like I said, it's, it, it's, it's causing some damage to my table. I need to take <laughs> it off now, but <laughs> where can folks pick this up? Cause I know you self published it, which allows you to be more flexible with, you know, uh, the, the scientific review and making it as long as it is. Can people pick it up anywhere? Yeah, people, the main, the main way to find it is just on Amazon. It's honestly the easiest. I don't have to deal with shipping it. I'm more than happy if you want a personalized hardback copy. If you want to order it off my website, I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very happy to personalize it for you and get you that, that version of the book, which you can only find, uh, on my website. But if you're indifferent to the format, Go wherever, go go on Amazon, pick it up on Audible. There's an audiobook associated with it, which everybody in the publishing industry not only discouraged me to do, they said it was a terrible idea. And it is I'm really, really happy with the way that product um with the way that product turned out. It's not just a straight read of the book. I intersperse it with 
interviews from a lot of the key players and scientists that I that I drew from, as well as our coaching staff, as well as Stephanie. Uh, she's in she's in the audiobook as well. But really, pick it up where you're most comfortable picking it up. Kindle, Audible, Amazon, or on my or on my website. I'm, and I'm more than happy to personalize those copies if if if, if that's meaningful to people. I, I got to say, I do have a personalized copy, and I, I prefer it that way. But Jason, what is actually your website? What's the URL? Oh, yeah, it's just jasoncoop.com. So my first name, last name, Coop spelled with a K. And uh, if you go to there forward slash book, you'll get right to the page. It's very simple. It's the only thing I sell on my website. There's no t-shirts or coffee bugs or anything like that. It's just the book. Um, in addition to that, there is a, a completely free download with all of the f- tables and figures from the book. It doesn't matter if you've bought the book or not. I've made it available for free. You don't have to enter your email. I won't spam you. I don't track where people are coming from or anything like that. I just wanted that to be available to for, for everybody, primary for the audiobook uh, listeners. Uh, in the Audible version, it's actually, it's actually kind of slick the way it works. It's within the Audible app you can reference all of the tables and figures. It's just a, like a little section in the table of contents, essentially. But for those people that get it on iTunes, that feature isn't there for whatever reason. So the bottom line is I just wanted people to have it and be able to distribute it however they wanted to. It's not my, I don't view it as like my proprietary stuff or whatever. So if you go to my website, you'll, you'll actually find that as well, as well as the entire the entirety of chapter one I put on my uh, website as well. You can listen to it for free. Decide if you love it or hate it. And if you like it, download the audio book. It's, you know, training content, so it doesn't come across the best via audio. But I'm kind of blown away at the feedback, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, it's it's an amazing achievement to have put together such a comprehensive manual for training for ultra running. So congrats again on the book, Jason. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm so glad that people have a lot of different options for consuming the book, too. So appreciate it. Thanks, man. And uh, the final thing that I'll mention, since I've got this platform right now, for any visually impaired runners that are out there, the audiobook is on me. So just get a hold of me via social, via on my website, and I will provide you a free copy of the audiobook. No questions asked. I've done that with several kind of training groups and things like that that are visually impaired because I know that that is an underserved group in terms of training content because a lot of people don't want to produce training content in an audio format. I'm happy. I'm happy to get that out to anybody that's in the visually impaired uh, uh, cu- uh, community, and it, it's 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 my honor to be able to do that. That's really great, Jason. Thanks for doing that. And I'm going to have links to the resources you've mentioned on your site and the book and uh, your social media handles if folks want to get in touch with you for that uh, copy of the audio version of the book. But Jason Coop, everyone, thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And there we have it. I hope you got a lot out of this conversation with coach Jason Coop and that you check out his amazing book, Training Essentials for Ultra Running. There are links to the book, Jason's website, and his social media profiles in the show notes on strengthrunning.com. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsor, Inside Tracker, for their support. Inside Tracker is one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies that you can find. They were founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D, can help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, 
or optimally training, or if you have a health issue that might be affecting your running. But the best part is that they give you personalized optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers and a whole host of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them over the years, and the process is simple. It's easy, and it's very eye-opening, especially if you haven't done a deep dive on your biomarkers just yet. I recently had an at-home blood draw, which is very convenient. They come right to your house, and I got my results back. And I certainly have some things to work on, most notably my cortisol levels. They were slightly elevated, meaning I'm dealing with some stress. Sometimes a comprehensive blood test is the only way to truly track what's happening internally so you can make positive changes in your lifestyle. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. Of all the investments you can make in your running, this one is like getting a detailed checkup or regularly scheduled maintenance for your internal physiology. It's a wonderful opportunity, and you can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. That's our show today, friends. Thank you for being part of the Strength Running community, and we'll be in touch. 